All right, we'll begin. Um, so we're going through all the books of the Bible, one by one. And, uh, oh yeah, there's a handout. Handouts over there, sorry. And um, the pace that I was trying to go at was five books a week. But uh, I got bogged down and slowed down a couple of times. I'm going to really try to get through the pastoral epistles today. And uh, actually, um, Sunday school is what I truly love and I'm passionate about. Um, if I could write my own job description, it would just be Sunday school every week. Um, this is my happy place because it allows us to go sort of deep, deep, more deeply into the biblical texts. Um, we're looking at... So my goal is to uh, be very disciplined and get through all the books um, So because I, there's so many other subjects I want to get to as well. Um, today we're going to look at what, what are called the pastoral epistles. They're called pastoral epistles because um, they were written by Paul to pastors. Ooh, it's getting really warm. Um, actually, Dan, can you fix it while I'm... Um, I think you just turn it off. Yeah. Um, it was written to pastors about the organization and care of the local church, which uh, maybe at first blush might seem like, oh, then I don't need to read this if I'm not a pastor. But it is broadly applicable to all Christians, um, everyone who's doing ministry, which should be everybody. Um, so let's go into First Timothy. And I'm going to use First Timothy to launch into a bigger subject of church government, um, because it's a big part of, of the text that we have on that subject. But it's written to Timothy. He's pastoring in the city of Ephesus. You can read about it, um, how he came to faith, in, um, or how he joined Paul in Acts 16, verses 1 through 4. The purpose of the letter Paul gives us, uh, I'll read to you uh, chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. Listen to this. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. So that's the purpose. Paul wants to give Timothy instructions about the, the life and the organization of the church. He call, it's, I think it's interesting he calls it the household of God. The word household there is the Greek word oikos. Oikos um, simply means household. It's not really a word that we use in English a lot. Um, it's because we're uh, modern American society is so um, individualistic and the families that we have are nuclear families, so just mom and parents, our parents and the children. But in the ancient world, they lived in a household. So this was multiple generations. These are grandparents, parents, aunts and uncles, you know, um, children, cousins, all living in the same structure. Not only that, not only blood relatives, but servants uh, would live with you. So it's a really big, bustling, kind of uh, crowded, you know, 20 to 30 people would be all living in this one household compound. Um, I think it's interesting that he uses that word to describe the church. What does that mean? The Christian life is not a solitary existence, but it's inside of this uh, multi-generational, messy, dense family. And so how do we live together in harmony in a family, right? Um, in a family, you have fights, you have disagreements. Um, and so this is where the importance of church government comes into place. And uh, theologians always love to use words that are not common <laughs> usage. So if you look at the literature, it's not called church government, it's called church polity. 
The word polity here means uh, government. Um, so we're going to talk about church uh, government, church polity for the majority of the class today. Um, and when I talk about church government, people have a natural aversion to it. Um, they don't like it. Uh, they think immediately associations of church politics, infighting in the church. But I think there are two good reasons why we should study church polity. Number one, the Bible talks about it in a great number of places. If the Bible talks about it, then it's important for us. It's there for our instruction and edification. Secondly, the lack of government does not spare us fights, but it creates more fights. Um, the absence of clarity and legitimacy in church government leads to more fighting. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, 14.33, God is not a God of chaos, but of peace. So the church government is there to provide structure and order. If you've ever been to a country with very little government, like Haiti, um, you'll realize that uh, good government is a deep blessing to the people. It doesn't seem like that in the United States, but we actually have a very stable, relatively good government, and so the people can flourish. All right, so the question of church polity, there's two basic questions. The first one is, where does authority lie? So, where is authority in the church? And historically speaking, there have been three answers. Uh, and this maps onto the three basic forms of church government that have been um, proposed or people have enacted and practiced in um, throughout history. You may not know this, but actually um, the major reason why denominations split uh, or were created is because of this debate on church polity. It was a much more intense issue, for example, during the Reformation than, than it is now. But um, if you, for example, know the, um, the English Reformation, this was the, the major issue that split all the denominations. So the first answer is the people. The authority in the church lies with the people. Um, you could sort of think of it if you map it onto uh, uh, just governments. Let me slide this. Somebody please remind me to return turn it but um, so the people so think of it like democracy or direct democracy um, the people make the decisions and we can call this a form of church government congregationalism um, this form of church government is probably the most popular form of church government in the United States uh, most prominently practiced by Baptists But uh, there's a lot of denominations that are similar to this. Um, the second answer would be elders. Um, a small circle of, um, of leaders who have the authority, who make this decision. So you could think of this as a republic. And this maps onto uh, another form of church government called Presbyterianism. Um, the most prominent denomination being Presbyterians. Um, and then, finally, would be, uh, where does authority lie? It would lie with a single bishop. And you could think of this as monarchy. And this maps onto Episcopalism. 
What denomination does this remind you of? I don't know if denomination is maybe the right word. Actually, it is. Which branch does this remind you of? Catholicism, right? Where's my pens? I don't know. It disappeared. Oh, here they are. But also uh, Anglicanism or um, Episcopalianism, Catholics. All right. So that's the basic forms of government. Um, you could just see why denominationalism was formed based on church government, because Presbyterianism is based on the word presbyter, which is the Greek word for elder. Episcopalism is based on the Greek word episkopos, which is where we get the word bishop. So you have these two major denominations, and their basic name is um, has to do with the form of church government. If you know the English Reformation, what happened is the Church of England split from the Catholic Church. They kept they they adopted all of the uh, Lutheran uh, doctrines of salvation, but they kept the Catholic forms of church government. So it was a kind of like hybrid uh, form. And then what happened is that this uh, reform movement in England started. They were called Puritans, and they wanted to purify, truly reform the church, looking at the teachings of Calvin. So they rebelled. There was the English Civil War. And so then they formed Presbyterianism, um, and then this is where Presbyterianism came out of, the Westminster Assembly. There was all this fighting. But basically, uh, th- these are the three basic forms. And then the second question, I told you there are two major questions about church polity, is what is the relationship between the churches? And there are two basic answers. Um, churches are interconnected with one another. This is called connectionalism. And then the other answer is churches are independent of one another. Um, so in connectionalism, all the churches are institutionally and organizationally united and interconnected and mutually accountable and no one is autonomously free to act on their own, but everyone has to act in unison. So the two forms of church government that is related to connectionalism is Presbyterianism and Episcopalism. Um, And then independency is related to um, congregationalism. I can see theoretically how congregationalism can also be connectional, but for reasons that I'm not deeply familiar with. It doesn't work like that. Um, there are two kinds of independent churches. There are ex- what I would call extreme independence. So they believe in absolute autonomy. Every church is totally, utterly on their own. Sometimes churches will even put that word in their name. Um, they're called independent. Um, uh, so these are called non-denominational churches. Some churches believe in sort of um, modest connectionalism. So you'll have, for example, the Southern Baptist Convention. They believe in independency, but they they work together. It's sort of like a confederacy. They work together. They associate with one another in a denomination, but the denomination has no power to tell individual churches what to do. Um, they just sort of like they just sort of huddle together and associate on certain things, but otherwise they're, they're independent. Whereas connectional churches, um, there's a lot more teeth 
to the unity. All right, so those are the three forms of government. Let me map it out for you, like graphically what it looks like. Oh dear, all right. All right, so first let's talk about Episcopalism. So in Episcopalism, you have a single church leader at the top, the bishop. And under his supervision and direct authority, you have all these individual churches. Um, And he appoints the pastor and the officers in each church, but he ultimately makes the decision, right? And so... um, in a very hierarchical denominational branch of Christianity like Catholicism, the Bishop of Rome, which is called the uh, the Pope, uh, the Father, he then appoints, um, it's too much, there's too many churches, so he appoints bishops under him, and then they, those archbishops appoint bishops under them, and so there's, it's like the government, it's like the uh, military, there's just like all these different rankings. Um, in, for example, Anglicanism or Episcopalism, um, you have uh, each bishop handles their their region, and then all the bishops sort of gather together and then they coordinate and work together, but they don't recognize necessarily a single head, although the Church of England does have a head, but he's not nearly as powerful as the Pope. All right, um, let's talk about Presbyterianism. So in Presbyterianism, the elders have the authority over the church. Okay? This is where authority lies. And all the churches are interconnected to one another. Do you see? And when we talk about Presbyterianism, what do we mean by elders? Um, let me just talk about the PCA, which is our denomination, which is the denomination, of course, I'm the most familiar with. We have two classes of elders. We have pastors and who are called um, ruling elders, uh, sorry, teaching elders. I'll put T-E. That's actually the lingo that we, we use. So p- there are pastors, and then there are elders that we call ruling elders, R-E. The difference between the two classes is that pastors are full-time and they specialize in teaching, but other, and then elders are usually, uh, working, um, they have, you know, their regular job, um, but then they also do the eldering sort of, um, as an extra activity beyond their regular work. But in a Presbyterian system, pastors and elders are equal. Um, they have equal authority, uh, they have different roles, but they have, uh, they're, they're both, um, elders, they're both shepherding, they're both have, they have authority over the church. And then, they're all interconnected in the sense that all the elders meet together. I should have mapped out, um, graphically what this was gonna look like. In, in an organization called the Presbytery. Does that make sense? So all the, so the Presbytery is a regional gathering of all the elders 
teaching elders and ruling elders, although practically speaking in the PCA, it's usually a bunch of pastors meeting because um, it's like during the work week. Um, although we have a lot of uh, ruling elders there too. And the decisions and the, the, um, the decisions of the presbytery are binding and authoritative to all the churches. Does that make sense? And then above the presbytery, we have something else called the General Assembly. I'll just put GA here. And that's the National Assembly of all the presbyteries. That meets once a year. And you could think of it as sort of courts of appeal. Um, let's say uh, the elders are having a dispute. So they talk to the presbytery. They consult all the other elders. And let's say there's a big dispute at this level. Then they go up to this level, to the General Assembly, and then they can make these decisions. So that's Presbyterianism. Um, and then finally, Congregationalism. Here, each church is independent. No church has authority over another church. Um, they, they can associate with one another, like the Southern Baptist Convention. Um, they can coordinate, like they do missions together. Um, or they'll support a seminary together. But otherwise, um, each church is free to teach its own like doctrinal positions, for example. Or each church is allowed to organize their church in their own way. They don't have to follow common um, structures or procedures. And the people have the ultimate decision. Um, so, you know, and it, it works out differently in, in different congregational churches, but all major decisions are voted on directly by the congregation. So, for example, the budget is voted on by the congregation, other things. Um, they will have elders, pastors, and deacons, but those are more like officers appointed or voted on by the congregation, but the authority still lies with the congregation. And then there's a fourth form of church government. I didn't mention it because it's going to get a little messy, but it's sort of a high, I would call it hybrid congregationalism. These are churches where they sort of follow Presbyterianism and that elders are given the authority, but they still maintain independency. So each church elders is separate. Before I go on to uh, the biblical case for Presbyterianism, are there any questions about the three basic forms of church government that we see? So the, so the two basic questions is where does authority lie and are churches connected or independent? Yes? Why was it the General Assembly has a problem? Um, they just do straight vote. So like let's say there's a Presbytery meeting and let's say there's 20 people there. And let's say 11 people vote this way, 9 people vote this way. They can appeal to the General Assembly and say, we have this major disagreement. Um, and then the General Assembly is the final court of appeals. It's sort of like, you could think of it as the Supreme Court. So the Supreme Court disagrees all the time. But it doesn't matter. Whoever has the five votes, they win. Yeah. Yes? Deacons are also officers in the church, but they don't have authority. Right, but what, how are they appointed or elected or decided on? Yeah, so in a, an Episcopal system, these are appointments made by the bishop. Um, 
in a Presbyterian system, they're elected by the congregation. Um, so both deacons and elders are elected, but deacons is not an office of authority. It's an office of service. Um, diakonos actually literally just means servant. Um, and I'm thinking about all the things that, like the administrative things that it seems like the pastors and elders, teaching elders and ruling elders are doing at IGC right now. And yeah. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah, that's the next step. I'm eager to, to, to appoint deacons. I think um, in many ways the future deacons of IGC are people who are already assuming that role. In many ways, they're already recognized servant leaders in our church. But what we do is we officially recognize them, and we give them a kind of authority because of that because of their office, and we honor them and recognize them in that way. Um, but the difference is that elders is a position of authority and deacons is not a position of authority. Right. So, like, when you mentioned budget earlier, yeah. um, that is, would be something done at the individual church level? Is that something you guys discuss in Presbyterian? Yes. Budget? <laughs> <laughs> yes. So, um, so every Presbyterian will have its own policies about what will promote the good health of all the churches. And so there's all kinds of accountability structures. So, for example, you have to submit your notes, um, your elder notes, to the presbytery. Like your meeting notes? Your meeting notes. So I've been reading Canyon Creek's meeting notes. They are mind-numbingly boring <laughs> to, <laughs> to read. But I just have to read through them. And then if there's anything that concerns me or that I find to be alarming, then I can raise an issue and say this is this is disturbing to me, um, and that way there's accountability. There's a lot of we don't we don't necessarily submit individual bus budgets, but we do submit, for example, um, the salaries of pastors. So this is a way for presbytery to look at things and make sure there isn't excessive pay or there isn't um, excessively low pay. Either way, yeah. So the, actually, presbytery has some guidelines that they give us. Um, for how we should do things. Any other questions? Yes. How did they, uh, which model did, uh, did the Apostle Paul follow? Mm, that's a good question. Yeah. That's the next one. So let's go into it. Young, did you have a quick question? Yeah. No, okay. All right. Huh? All three polities will say they are following the great shepherd, the authority of Christ. Um, so nobody is disputing that Christ is the head of the church but then how does that play out right for example in Catholicism the Pope is his special representative but in uh, these other two forms of church government we don't recognize any one individual as being given special representational power um, all right so here's the biblical case for Presbyterianism as I said I don't think the Bible is silent on this issue uh, so the first answer is, let me address Episcopalism. Um, it's based on this whole idea that there are two different offices, pres- presbyteros and episkopos. But if you actually read the Bible, um, pres- uh, 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 what is it? Episcopos is translated overseer, and then uh, presbyteros is translated um, elder. But those two words are interchangeable all the time. And I don't want to go into all the proof texts, but they're, they're swapped out all the time. And I think what's going on here is that Paul 
It's just using different labels or different titles to describe different angles of how to understand the single office. So um, episkopos means basically overseer. Um, this is like a like like the manager. Like for example, there's a work crew. There's a manager to the work crew. That's the overseer. Um, so it's talking about the managerial role of the elder. And then the word elder, of course, just means old person. Um, you don't necessarily have to be an old person, but it's talking about their, usually older people are wise, they have experience. Um, so it's talking about that. I think um, contrary to um, congregationalism, elders clearly have, are given authority over the church. Um, so let me read you First Timothy chapter 3. This will be the time when we read First Timothy 3, but I just want to highlight uh, a narrow section of the passage. Um, it's interesting to me that when Paul talks about, he doesn't, uh, the Bible never has church government section, church polity section. We pick it up incidentally through a mul- like a dozen or so passages, including this one. His main focus is the character qualities of elders. But in reading the character qualities, we can pick up their role. So the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, that's the word, by the way, episkopos, right? But it's the same as elder. He desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must, listen, and this is the salient verses, he must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of God's church? Now, uh, let me just read the whole passage and then I'll circle back to it. He must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. So, if you look at verses 4 and 5, that uh, that qualifier is not there for deacons. There are actually two qualifiers that are not repeated among the deacons, which is able to teach, so the teaching role, and then uh, managing, uh, being a manager. And the qualification is, if the elder has his own household, and almost always, you know, this was the case, you know, there were no single people in the in the ancient world. Um, if he, uh, he, in his household, he has to demonstrate that he's been a good manager. Or maybe a better way to put it is he has to demonstrate he's been a good spiritual leader and a good shepherd of his own family. And that's the necessary qualification to then be a shepherd and a spiritual leader to the family of God, the church. So there again we see the authority position of the elder. Um, It's not printed for you in your handout, but let me read to you 1 Peter chapter 5. Verses 1 through 2, and then I'm going to also read verse 5. Listen to Peter. So I exhort the elders among you, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. So it's very, the the language of shepherding is very important. Um, The congregation is the sheep, and the elders are called shepherds, right? And what is the relationship between shepherds and the sheep? Shepherds have authority over the sheep. Um, so likewise, elders have authority. And it, it, Peter says, exercising oversight. And then in verse 5, he says, Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. So submit to the elders. Um, obey the elders. So again, this suggests uh, the republic form of the government, not 
pure democracy. It's not the congregation who decides things among themselves. It's not the sheep deciding where to go, but authority is given to the shepherds, and then they make these decisions. Any questions about elders? There are many other passages that talk about, show, demonstrate that elders are, have this shepherding authority. But any questions there? Yes? I'm just thinking, like, right away, like, of Paul, who was single, right? And mm-hmm. he would have been, like, so, like, is that just a special exception to, like, not managing a household, or is, like... Yeah, Paul was an unusual exception. Um, he would have been a bit of an oddball. There's some question about whether Paul was actually married beforehand, and then his wife passed away. Um, but yeah, Paul would be such an exception. Any other questions? All right, let me go on. Um, what about connectionalism, right? Uh, where did it go? Here we go. Connectionalism versus independency. So here the major proof text is what happened in Acts chapter 15 in the Council of Jerusalem. So here's a little bit of uh, the drama in Acts. The major, major controversy that riled up the whole, the, the riled up the church was the issue of circumcision. Does circumcision apply to, to Gentile converts? And it was such an intense controversy in Antioch that they, they, that they had to convene what is called the Council of Jerusalem. This was a gathering of apostles and elders from multiple churches. I think it's very interesting. Apostles are absolutely, they're given, um, great authority over the church. They wrote the New Testament, right? Um, they determine practice and doctrine. Um, but their qualification is that they were directly appointed by Christ. They are witnesses of the resurrection. And we don't have apostles anymore. Actually, the next Sunday School series is I want to talk about gifts of the Spirit and apostles and everything. But anyways, I think it's interesting to me that the apostles could have just met and decided the matter among themselves. But what did they do? They brought along the elders. I think why? Because... Um, they were setting up the organization of the church for the future, which is that elders have authority. And so let me just read you one verse, Acts 15, verse 2. Paul and Barnabas, they're at Acts, I mean, they're at Antioch, and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and, and the elders about this question. And so they all meet together. They all have this intense conversation. Is circumcision binding on, on Gentile believers? And they decide, led by the Spirit, no. Gentiles do not have to be circumcised. <laughs> um, and then, what they do is they write a letter dictating this decision. And they have the letter sent around to all the churches. And that letter is binding. Churches are not free to go independently and make up their own decision on this matter, this higher court council of Jerusalem makes a binding decision that applies the practice and doctrine of all the churches. So that demonstrates Presbyterianism in practice. The council of Jerusalem is equivalent to the Presbytery. So contra-Episcopalism, we don't see a distinction made about the bishop versus elders. Contra-Congregationalism, we see elders in authority, and we also see the churches are interconnected through um, a presbytery. Any questions on that? Let me just see how I'm doing in time. Okay, I'm doing I'm doing so well. But any questions? Do you think it's fair to say that congregationalism is more common in this country? Absolutely. Yeah, it is the most common form of church government. Uh, the reason why is 
it has to go back to the Reformation, but um, uh, basically the Reformation was objecting to Catholicism, and the the objections basically had to do with two issues: the doctrine of salvation, but also church government. Um, and so the Presbyterianism represents what's called the High Reformation. So um, this was more um, it was more prevalent among intellectuals, academic people, um, townspeople. Um, they, they, they. I think sociologically, it it fit better with you know their temperament. And then there was what's called the Lower Reformation or the Radical Reformation. These were like the peasants, and they took up the doctrines of salvation, and they were so excited, but they also wanted lots of radical reforms, and so they had like direct democracy decisions, they wanted to get rid of all hierarchy, no to, um, in, you know, people in uh, leadership, and that spirit, it, they're called the Anabaptists, that spirit transferred over to England, uh, gave birth to the Baptists, uh, the denomination of the Baptists, and then the Baptists, because of their connection to the people, they were always the ones that were more adventurous. To their credit. So Presbyterians, Episcopalians, they stayed on the coast of the United States, the eastern seaboard. They stayed in the towns and the universities among the elite. So for example, um, if you look at the U- U.S. Senate, highly disproportionate number of Presbyterians, Episcopalians. Donald Trump, for example, he claims to be a Presbyterian, but just shows you, you know, this sort of the elite hoity-toity class. But it was the Baptists who went west with the people, and so they evangelized and they converted um, the frontier lands. And so this is what we have right now is a reflection of the Baptists are by far the majority of the religious expression, Christian expression in America, um, to their credit, because they went out there. Does, I don't know if that answers your question, or I just went way off. Anything else? Any other questions? All right. Um, I have a, yeah. kind of a cynical yes, what's your cynical question? Um, so, uh, my understanding is that some of the non denominational Baptist churches that I've been to, they also had elders. Um, so, they were kind of a hybrid between right. Congregationalism. The only benefit I've seen from the Presbyterian uh, polity is that you have some sort of accountability. Mm-hmm. But then again, my question to you is, um, is there really accountability when you are the only sounding board are the people that think exactly like you? Mm. So you have already formed a sect that uh, agrees with your particular point of view. Mm. So is there, yeah, in terms of theology. Yeah, I, so I think human thing? sin <laughs> makes it so there is no infallible system. So Presbyterianism, I deeply believe, is the biblical system that Christ our Lord gave us. But it doesn't ensure corruption, abuse of power, and so forth. Um, you're right. There is, there's structurally accountability. But then there's all kinds of ways for people to... Like the PCA is not immune from controversy. There's all kinds of pastors who do all kinds of shenanigans. Um, but I would say congregationalism lends itself... You would think congregation, congregationalism has the most accountability since the, the congregation has, the, the authority lies in the congregation. But what happens practically is that the congregation can't do it. 
So they appoint or they elect a pastor, you know, to do the teaching, and he ends up being effectively a pope of his own church. He ends up having a lot of power. And because he doesn't have peers, um, elders, for example, within his own church, but more importantly, el- other elders in, in, the, in the presbytery, there's no real check on his power. And so I think it lends itself to lots of abuses of power. If you look at like crazy cults, you know, like wild, crazy stuff, it's usually in a congregationalist style church government. Um, maybe that's my own biased perspective looking at it. But also you see, so you have individual cases of extreme abuse. But I think what you have in Episcopalism is you have system-wide structures of abuse. Because it, it, it's all hierarchical, it, it, it goes down from the top. So I think what's going on with, for example, the, um, the sex scandal in the Catholic Church, it goes back multiple decades because you have a single person at the top. He gets to make the decisions, and then you know it lowers it down. So I'm trying to think, like, in our own presbytery, could some massive scandalous abuse, for example, like what happened at uh, Willow Creek, right? Could this pastor just prey on women over multiple decades with lots of complaints or what happened at Mars Hill with, with uh, Mark Driscoll, right? Lots and lots of abuse where um, lots of people are complaining. Could that just go on and on and on? I truly can't see how that could happen because <laughs> in our presbytery, you have a bunch of independent people. All the pastors love to talk and so it's, it's <laughs> presbytery goes on forever for that reason. But everyone, like there, nobody, nobody is like a pope. You know, everybody, you know, has their bossy opinion. And so, in that sense, it keeps it in check. But are you saying, like, there isn't full representation, like women? Is that is that where you're going at? <laughs> um, maybe that wasn't exactly my line. Uh-huh. I guess what I was going at was, you know, all the differences that the, you know, different denominations have, that have, that, that they have, um, how, you know, we just keep it separate instead of, you know, arguing Yeah, I think I I, the reason why I like Presbyterianism is because from my perspective, Presbyterianism is not necessarily superior. Hmm. So I guess I, I need you to convince me. <laughs> yeah, I think in the end, even a good elder board is not sufficiently robust enough to check a particularly charismatic, talented, abusive pastor. So you need, I think, other elders in other churches who aren't under the sway who then can can act as a check. So I think elders within the church should act as a corrective <laughs> check. Um, and by the way, can I just say as the pastor, it's not just corrective check, but support and encouragement <laughs> is what pastors need too. But, um, but, they, but it's not enough. The elders within the church is not enough. It's not robust enough. So I think you need um, institutionally structured forms of checks. And so only Catholicism or Anglicanism and Presbyterianism offers that. Um, and I think the more democratic structure of, of Presbyterianism is maximally effective. 
I don't know. The Presbyterian uh, PCA is only a 50-year-old denomination, so we haven't ever had a massive controversy, scandal, raucous. So maybe, maybe one's coming, but I, I can't. I truly, I can't see how it, it could happen. Yes. Yeah. If like our church wants to do something, but yeah. the Presbyterian disagrees, yes. Does that mean then they will say you no longer belong with our Presbyterian? Um, no. There's like all kinds of long process of appeals and adjudication. We love to talk. Not infighting, conversations. <laughs> like yes. if, if, let's say we want to hire a pastor, but the presbytery disapproves, and then mm-hmm. that's then, happened. Then it just goes on a long-standing, uh, whatever you want to call it. Well, if you're a Presbyterian, you believe in submission. Uh-huh. So in the end, if you find yourself persistently in the minority, and you've tried your best to persuade your brothers, but you could not. You submit. Well, there was one instance where uh, six churches in San Francisco, they used to belong to the PCA denomination, but the pastor Fred decided to uh, involve uh, women leaders, um, and so they actually, I think, removed themselves from PCA and joined the uh, Reformed Church. RCA. Yeah. They shouldn't have done that because that's not according to their promise. But um, yes, people do that. So it's sort of like church membership. Let's say Jeff, you um, you're involved in some gross, um, what is it, some terrible sin, and then we rebuke you and we say, Jeff, what are you doing? You know, repent and and turn to Christ. And you, your job, Jeff, is to say yes. Thank you for for waking me up out of my spiritual slumber. But can you just say, forget you, I'm out of here. Yes. So that happens all the time, but that shouldn't happen. I look Theoretically, a church can decide to leave if mm-hmm. you don't want to submit to the Presbyterian. That's right. It could be willful. And that has happened. All right. There should be a punishment for that. <laughs> <laughs> the punishment is my disapproving... Put your finger on yeah. it. <laughs> I'll take that. <laughs> All right. Let's go on to the next thing. All right. Uh, Second Timothy. Um, where are we? Okay. Um, this is Paul's last letter before his death. He was writ- writing this in prison. He's, incur- he's writing to Timothy, encourage him in the face of suffering, particularly his suffering that Timothy would be discouraged, but also suffering that Timothy is going through. 
And there's something really interesting that really resonated, resonates with me whenever I read Second Timothy, which is Paul. one of Paul's repeated themes is that ministry is suffering. He says, uh, for example, in chapter 1, verse 8, he tells Timothy, I want you to share in the suffering of the gospel or for the gospel. So why is suffering necessary for gospel ministry? And this applies, I think, not just to pastors and elders, but to anyone who does ministry. And let me give you three reasons. Number one, I think suffering demonstrates the authenticity of the message. If you, if it costs you nothing to share the gospel, or if in fact you benefit from it, then the message can be dismissed. But if it costs you a lot, if it requires costly sacrifice, then people will know that your message is precious. The example I would give um, is John Piper talked about this missionary in India. He went and he preached to the village. They all disregarded him, ignored him. The missionary went outside the village feeling quite discouraged, exhausted. He fell asleep at the foot of a tree. When he woke up, he saw all the villagers looking at him, surrounding him, and they were staring at his feet. His feet were bloodied, barefoot, um, and sore from all of his travels. And when they saw his feet, they woke, uh, when he woke up, they said, We're, we want to hear what you have to tell us. It was because of his suffering that gave him an audience. Secondly, suffering produces a powerful delivery. Um, I think um, suffering gives you a voice that nothing else can give you. Um, I was listening to a talk by Tim Keller. He was speaking before the uh, prayer breakfast before Parliament in the UK. And he was giving this talk and then he gave the example of the Amish. I don't know if you guys remember this, but there was a terrible school shooting where Amish children were killed by this crazed gunman. And when the Amish community found out who the gunman was, they went to the home, the family of the gunman, and they surrounded that family with encouragement and prayer and love and forgiveness. And as he was giving that example, and they were doing this out of their Christian testimony, and when Tim Keller was giving this example, there was just absolute silence in the room. Because I think that in the face of suffering, you become respectfully silent. And so you cannot minister. I think the most effective way you can minister to people is by suffering for them. Um, and it gives, your, it gives your voice to what you have to say. The third thing is that, um, the third thing is that whenever you love people, you're going to suffer. It's impossible not to suffer when you love. Uh, because you care about them so that when they are, when they hurt, you also hurt. Um, let's read, uh, 2 Timothy f- chapter 4, um, further instructions for ministry. I think it's a very powerful passage. Uh, I'm just gonna comment on, um, some of the phrases here. I would love, love, love to just go through this whole passage and preach through it, but uh, let me read it to you. It's in your bulletin, or not bulletin, it's in your, um, handout. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. So what does that mean? He's saying preach in good times and in bad times when people are eager and when they are not eager, keep going, right? Reprove. The word reprove there is elejo. It means to show someone their fault. It means to criticize them. He says rebuke. The word there is um, epipimao. That means to warn them of the consequences of their sins. So reprove and rebuke. These are unpleasant activities. People don't naturally like it. But this is what ministry is. You have to, you have to correct people. You have to warn them. You have to tell them, um, 
if they're doing something disastrous. He says, and exhort, parakaleo, it means to encourage, it means to speak the truth, it means to make an appeal. Um, The Greek word there means to come alongside and talk to them, um, and so encourage them. Uh, Where are we? Uh, With complete patience and teaching. Um, This is the manner in which we're supposed to speak. Um, It's going to require patience because people will not want to listen to you. People will reject what you have to say, uh, but you have to keep loving them. You have to be patient with them. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. So people are not going to appreciate what you have to say. If you're doing ministry right, there's going to be all kinds of times and instances where people reject you and tell you they don't appreciate what you're doing and then go in in another direction. And this is to prepare you for what real ministry is. Real ministry is not going to be something that makes you a very popular person. You deeply love somebody, but they're not going to appreciate it often. Um, what is it? And, and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded. Sober-minded it means don't be swayed too much by emotions, by problems. Be steadfast, be steady. In other words, you're going to want to quit all the time. But keep going. Endure suffering. Um, it's interesting. He doesn't say if they're suffering, endure it. There will be suffering. But your role in, in ministry is to endure it. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering. I think it's a very compelling imagery. Um, it's a drink offering in which you pour out and you offer it to God. And so that's your life. Right? You're not being poured into. You're pouring, you're being poured out. You're giving yourself everything that you have. Um, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. Um, I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Look at the language, the metaphors Paul uses. It's a fight. It's a race. These are intense words. Right? These are arduous, full of difficulty, requiring discipline and training. Nobody goes into a fight relaxed. Nobody prepares for a race without going through intense training to get ready for it. And so you don't coast through the Christian life. You don't slack and get by. But it's an an intense endeavor. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who who have loved his appearing. There's a great prize awaiting us. One day we're going to meet our Lord, And when he sees us, he's going to say, good and faithful servant, well done. And it's going to, it is going to resound in our hearts and our souls for all of eternity. And it'll be worth all the suffering, um, all the agony. My favorite scene in The Lord of the Rings is the wedding scene of Aragorn. And um, Aragorn, and then he, um, but he says, right, he comes down and all the people are bowing, or what is it, kneeling before him. And then he comes to the hobbits, Right, who, who sacrificed so much. And he tells them, you bow to no one. And so he bows before them. And then all the, uh, the congregation, all the people kneel to honor these hobbits, right? And it's like one of the most moving scenes in the whole movie. And this is my imagination for what it will be. You know, the honor and the praise for, um, the, the reward that we will receive from our Lord, right? It's worth all the endeavors, all the efforts. Um, let's go on to the last one. 
for the sake of time. I'm just going to read a, a quick passage from Titus without comment. Um, he wrote this to Titus, who was pastoring in Crete. This is for the moral ordering of the church. I really love this passage too. Listen. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to too much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. I know um, some of you may be distressed reading about that. I wish I could have the time to unpack that a little bit better. Um, I think the translation is a little bit rougher than it needs to be. But verse 6, Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. So that's the vision that Paul has for the church. Everybody has a role. Everybody um, is doing the work of ministry. And everybody is striving for godliness, for good order, um, to be a good witness, um, and to patiently endure persecution, misunderstanding, um, and abuse when that happens. Um, because we're out of time, I apologize. No questions. We're just going to close with that. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for Scripture. Thank you that we're not left wondering what we are to do. What is this life all about? But you've set us on this incredible adventure, this life of ministry. Our vision is to follow Jesus and help others to follow Jesus. And we see it in the, in the, in the Scriptures. Help us to do that. Help us to live it out. We confess of our own strength we would fail utterly. But with the Spirit, nothing is impossible. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you, everybody.